Welcome to Changes in Latitudes, a Transgender Experience. A 40-something trans woman shares her observations, life stories, and the adventures of her journey through transition and beyond. And now, here she is, your host, Sabrina Miller. Listen to that band. I'm so glad they're here once again. Give it up for them. Go. them they get better every week that is chris J and the animal crackers band give it up for him one last time yay yay chris J and the animal crackers band that's uh actually a little personal inside joke uh for me <laughs> so don't worry if it throws anybody off except it's for me uh <laughs> uh all right well we'll come back here we are episode 18 uh, we're getting up there. Hey, we're legal. We can vote now. The podcast can vote and join the army and buy cigarettes. And what else? What else can you do at 18? Register to vote. Um, I can't think of anything else offhand. But yeah, we're there. Yay. All right. So how's everybody doing? Thanks for downloading and listening. I really appreciate that. Uh, if this is your first time joining us, welcome, welcome. Enjoy the ride. Enjoy the, <laughs> dare I say, journey. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I'm going to add a sound effect in there somewhere. All right. Well, last episode, uh, episode 17, was just a, a something I wanted to get out there. Uh, I realized it in the editing process that this is just information I want to, if you, ha- if you aren't already thinking about it, do you start thinking about it is really what the message was there. And in, in, in Reader's Digest version, basically, uh, try not to draw attention to yourself, unnecessary attention to yourself. You know, I mean, there are times and places for that. Choose those appropriately and not just be that way all the time. Because if you are that way all the time, you're going to get attention all the time. Um, you uh, act appropriately, you know, uh, go with friends because there's power in numbers. I mean, it's stuff that you, you may not think about, but you should. Yeah. Um, and here's one that I don't, I think it's really overlooked by, um, well, everyone is let someone know where you're going. It, it, it's such a simple thing, but I think so many people just don't think about it. Oh yeah, they left, but I don't know where they went. Um, they, the, the store maybe. The, the mall, the movie theater, I don't know. Let somebody know, because that's the first place the people looking for you, search teams, police, blah, 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 that's what they're going to do, is ask around. And that episode, and, well, this episode, and all other episodes can be found at Changes in Latitudes podcast over at blogspot.com. Uh, search us out on iTunes and Stitcher, which is, I'm pretty much assuming, how you found us. <laughs> uh, if you really are into Twitter... You can follow me. I don't have one for the show. I don't want to juggle. I have a hard enough time keeping up with my own. I'm not going to juggle two, okay? Okay. Uh, My handle is at SabrinaMiller41, so you can find me there. 
over at uh, the good old Twitterverse. Um, I, the, the, I've said this before, I'm not a huge Twitter user, but if somebody tweets at me or if I want to get something out about the show or vent about something or share an article or something, that's where I'm going to go. You can also find us on the Facebook page, search us out, you know, changes in latitudes. We're, we're, we're making our presence known on the internet. You can find us. In fact, I'm sure you already have found us. If you go to the Facebook page, interact with me, let me know. That's really um, what I, I put it out there for and why I check it pretty regularly. And for those that are doing it, thank you. I appreciate it because uh, you know who you are. I've had little conversations in the replies with you folks, and uh, that's been uh, really wonderful. And what else can I share about anything but the main topic? I can't think of anything else. I th- think it's almost time to get into the main topic. Okay, now I know you probably haven't really heard that music before. I know you haven't heard it on this show. <laughs> I'm playing it because of today's episode. Uh, Victor Victoria. Uh, it's This is the main t- uh, title theme to the movie from 1982. This movie, especially now after I've come out as transgendered, means so much to me. It it's probably one of, one of the big catalysts that really started my subconscious churning about gender identity i mean that's the label we can use now it wasn't back then it was just i'm different i don't know how i'm different because the word that i want to use to express myself won't be created for another 30 or 20 to 30 years yeah that's how i felt (laughs) um so this as i said this movie it means so much to me and first uh, if you if you're familiar with the movie bear with me on this i'm going to read the synopsis from good old imdb Okay, so the simple one at the top of the page of IMDb says, A struggling female soprano finds work playing a male-female impersonator, but it complicates her personal life. I don't necessarily agree with that, but for a, for, for a quick one-liner of the, <laughs> of the show, okay, fine, I'll, I'll accept it. I'll accept it. So from IMDb, it says, In 1934 Paris, trained coliatura soprano Victoria Grant a native Brit, can't get a job as a singer and is having trouble making ends meet. She doesn't even have enough money for the basics of food and shelter. Gay cabaret singer Carol Toddy Todd may befall the same fate as Victoria as he was just fired from his singing gig at a second-rate club named Chez Louis. To solve both their problems, Toddy comes up with what he considers an inspired idea. With Toddy as her manager, Victoria pretending to be a man, get a job singing as a female impersonator. If they pull off the scheme, Toddy vows Victoria as her male alter ego will be the toast of Paris and as such be extremely wealthy. That alter ego, they decide, is Polish Count Victor Grazinski, Toddy's ex-lover who, dis- who was disowned by his family when they found out he was gay. The Count auditions for the city's leading agent, Andre Cassell, who, impressed, gets him a performing gig in the city's best nightclub. 
In the audience on the successful opening night is Chicago nightclub owner and businessman King Marchand, a stereotypical macho male who falls in love with the woman he sees on stage, which doesn't sit well with his current girlfriend, Norma Cassidy. King is shocked to learn that the woman is a man named Count Grzynski. While King tries to reconcile with his romantic feelings for Victoria, in truth, King doesn't truly believe the Count is a man, his business associates won't tolerate his change in sexual orientation. Although feeling emancipated being treated as a man, Victoria, as herself, in turn falls in love with King. To pursue something with him as a woman would mean giving up this lucrative career but the career may also come to an end in a jail term if the authorities find out that Victoria and Toddy have committed fraud in, in this impersonation. So that's from IMDb. That's one of the first plot summaries there. I'm sure the back of the, the box, if you actually have a box or some, some other thing, maybe on iTunes, has a different summary. But that's basically it. Um, that's if you've never seen the show. Now you have a basic concept of what I'm talking about. And I realized this, I mean, I know last week I said, hey, everybody, check it out. And then I realized, wait, it may not be everybody's cup of tea <laughs> because it's kind of musical. It's kind of uh, farcical comedy style. Um, and I realized that in 1982, well, pretty much most of the 80s, that worked. And really ever since uh, the late 90s, but especially like 2001 when 9-11 happened, we've really, we as a culture and society seem to be gravitating towards more realistic or more grounded storytelling, meaning we want to be able to feel as if it could happen in our neighborhood or a neighborhood similar to ours, that it happens in our reality versus a heightened reality such as like superheroes or uh, a period piece or something like that. So, so that's where it seems to be gravitating towards as far as entertainment goes. So that's why I don't know if it would fly today, but as a classic comedy, musical comedy oh it's it's fantastic i think it's one of blake edwards uh personal bests honestly but again i was 10 years old when it came when it came out and i was nine or ten when it uh when i when i actually saw it and i'll talk about that in just a moment but before that uh, let me just give you a little bit of background, if you don't already know, about my childhood. My parents divorced when I was three, so I was bouncing be- between two households for pretty much most of my life, uh, up until my teenage years, when I really stayed more with my mom. And then after that, I, I moved out when I was 19. No, uh, yeah, 19, technically, <laughs> right before my 20th birthday. So, uh, so I, as I said, I bounced around, and... There were times when, with, with on my at my mom's house, my mom and my stepfather would go out for the evening, or uh, there would be a babysitter. Or I, at when I got old enough, there was just me. There was times when uh, I was at my father's, and because of his long work day, he would fall asleep. Um, you know, after dinner, you know, you sit down and wow, and exhausted, you you, you pass out for an hour or two in the chair, and then you know, at, at midnight or one o'clock, you go to bed. Well, so from roughly <laughs> at times, not all the time, but roughly uh, when I was with my dad from, uh, which was weekends, uh, uh, usually from that around that nine o'clock, 10 o'clock hour um, till about midnight, one o'clock, I, I kind of had the run of the house. I mean, I had to be quiet. It's not like I could do construction or anything. I mean, you're sleeping on the couch, right? In the same room with me. 
But I had the control of the television and what we watched. Now, mind you, it's not like today where there's, you know, 2,000 channels plus streaming to choose from or and your own personal collection. No, back then, the uh, cable was not quite a thing. Uh, it was just starting. The concept of everybody having cable television brought to their homes. Uh, cable was for very rural areas where the only way to get reception was through cable television. So really, you only had one or two stations on that cable television. So not much to choose from. But we didn't even have that. So we had the basic, because it was Los Angeles, I think we had a few more stations than the average, you know, uh, city town in the country. I mean, I'm sure places like Chicago and New York and, you know, big cities had, you know, those stations and things. But probably not so much in the smaller towns and like the in between those big cities. Because I remember traveling, uh, going camping up in um, Central California near the Bakersfield area. And one night we stayed in a motel and there was no television. There was three or four stations to choose from. And that was it. So um, I feel lucky at home when we had, I think it was about 10. I want to say 10. That seems to be the number. It could be 11 or 12, but right around 10. Because those 11 and 12 ones are usually ones that don't show anything you want to see. So why count them? And so I got a chance to see a lot of different TV shows and a lot of different movies uh, that, that were playing on either a Friday night or a Saturday night when uh, sometimes, you know, in the summertime, Thursday night or whatever, when I would be over at my dad's house. Now, at my mom and stepfather's house, uh, they didn't go out too regularly, but in uh, the times that they did, usually it was a babysitter and the babysitter didn't, it wasn't related, no relation, you know, no blood relation. Uh, they didn't really care what I watched as long as I didn't tell and they didn't tell, you know? <laughs> That's what happens. And then as I got older, I, it was just me in the run of the house, so I got a chance to watch a little bit more. And that's when those, you know, two t cable stations came into play. Uh, so I got a chance to see this uh, on cable television before it became cable television. But that's not the first time I saw the film. And if you're following along, you're thinking, well, yeah, you saw it in the movie theater before it went to cable. That's only half true. <laughs> the, the part of seeing it in a movie theater is true. The movie theater was on, the, on a private uh, back lot somewhere. I don't really know because I was, like I said, nine or ten years old. Uh, it could have even been a late eight. Hey, that rhymes. Uh, you know, like right before my ninth birthday, especially it's in the summer, so... Uh, I don't really remember the details of the night, except uh, we had to look nice, meaning my father and I both had a, a shirt tie, I think he a sport coat. I, I don't remember those details. Just think 1981, 1982 style, you know, late 70s, early 80s style. Before the neon <laughs> and the big happened, Before it, it was more 70s than it was 80s, but I digress. But we were looking nice. It wasn't just a simple, um, come on over, you know, wear some comfortable clothes. No, this was, this was something to be dressed up and special for. Uh, only in my memory can I remember that it was on a private lot because we had to enter in through a gate. I don't know what, what, if it was a studio or if it was a screening lot or what the deal was because I, I was young and it's dark at the time. And then we were guided to park here and walk down here, go over there. And we went into this uh, private movie screen theater. It was a smaller, private movie theater. Still a big screen. Uh, well, big screen for the standards of 1982. But it wasn't a traditional movie theater. There was no um, concessions, really. 
I mean, there was no concession stand as we know it, no lobby as we know it from the theater, from movie theaters. It was just this one screen showing this film, and that was it. So we got there, and my fa- I sat down, and my father, you know, spoke to whoever he was friends with at the time, and 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 uh, what socialized, schmoozed, whatever you want to call it, networking, and then the movie started, and we watched it. Now <laughs> you're probably wondering, well, how did you get to this see this special screening of it? Uh, and this is before the movie was released. Uh, I was ever so blessed because of uh, the the profession that my father worked in. He worked with a chiropractic office, and only because it was in Los Angeles and only because it was in the San Fernando Valley did um, we have the opportunity for quote-unquote celebrities, stars. And again, there was no big brouhaha, TMZ, uh, paparazzi thing about actors and stars at that time. Uh, not like it is today, where, you know, oh, I saw so-and-so, that's good, let me tell everybody about it. No, this was a little more realistic. You realize that you lived in Los Angeles, which is right part of Hollywood. Hollywood is part of Los Angeles, which is where movies are made, and which is where actors that make those movies generally live. So there's a really good chance you're going to run into somebody at some time when you go do those monotonous things. Grocery store, uh, movie theater. Um, mall shopping, whatever it may be, you're gonna. There's a good chance out to dinner. <laughs> there's a good chance you're gonna bump into somebody. It's not so much like that anymore. Well, at least when I left in 2000, it wasn't like that anymore. But that's kind of how it was back then. So only because of where he worked and where it was located, he had a chance to cross paths with a fair number, not a large quantity, not huge amounts, but you know, a little more than a dozen. <laughs> not quite, not quite fifty. But a little more than a dozen. I, I don't really know because it wasn't any of my business. There was just certain times and certain people that he connected with, and I got a chance to meet. Um, and the, and they were they were names uh, at least back at that time. Associated directly with this movie was Alex Karras, who plays uh, the character of Squash, but he's also in Blazing Saddles and a number of other uh, movies. He's Mongo in Blazing Saddles, if you haven't figured it out. And uh, his wife, Susan Clark, and they, they were a dynamic team, uh, acting team together. And so through the office, I was able to, to meet them and had a wonderful relationship, I guess, is a kind of a way to say it. Uh, in that, we were invited over to their house for a couple, you know, backyard barbecues and... Uh, got a chance to swim in their pool, and uh, at the time I was swimming in the pool, I had no idea who I was, wh- who the adult was in the pool with us, playing with us, throwing the ball around, or whatever it was. Uh, but it was Ned Beatty, so that was something pretty cool. Other people that came through the office were uh, uh, Ted Knight, Ben Vereen, Gavin McLeod, Bernie Coppell, uh, the lovely Kay Ballard. Uh, Raquel Welch, um, and these are just off the top of my head. I, it's not like I kept a list. Um, this is just things that I, people I remember because they impacted my childhood. I, I kind of knew these people. Oh, Susan Clark and Alex Karras were also on the, the sh- midlife, mid-long, mid-run. You know, it was like a three- or five-year run um, of the TV show Webster, and they played the parents. 
uh, it was just a lovely relationship with these celebrities. And I don't mean, you know, starstruck celebrities. That's what their job was. Their profession was performing in, in on screen and off screen. So, you know, that's what they do. Like I said, you lived in L.A. There was a chance you're going to cross paths. And so because of that connection, I got a chance to see, well, not only Victor Victoria, but there was a re-release of uh, Lady and the Tramp before Lady and the Tramp was released to the public. So I got a chance to see that. Um, other things that w- we did, my, we were given uh, theater tickets to go see a bunch of different theater. I had an opportunity to see uh, Yul Brenner in The King and I, Sandy Duncan in Peter Pan, Topol in, in uh, Fiddler on the Roof. Um, Gene Stapleton uh, and uh, Marion Ross in Arsenic and Old Lace. So, I mean, I got a chance to, to, to be exposed to some wonderful, wonderful, well, talent. Yeah, that's where I'm going. But I, I also want to say people. They were just wonderful people. So, so that's how I got a chance to see an early screening of this risque movie that I didn't get a chance to see again until it was on cable oh, a handful of years later. But it had such an impact on me the very first time I saw it. I was like, this is an amazing movie. I have to see it. And at the time as a kid, I really enjoyed the singing, the songs. It was just, wow, this is amazing. Um, At the time watching it, I realized and I knew who Robert Preston was because I loved the movie version of The Music Man. I knew exactly who Robert Preston was. That's The Music Man. I know that. I think I probably said that to my dad. That's the music man, you know, on his first opening scene. And here he is playing this very, uh, I don't want to say very flamboyant, but pretty flamboyant gay man, conservative flamboyant, if that makes sense. Uh, It's kind of a contradictory in terms, but I think if you know the character, you know what I'm talking about. He's flamboyant, but not overly. And so, so, but I didn't pick up on the flamboyantness. I just thought it was more, it was showy. Because if you stop and think about it, even... Uh, Harold Hill from The Music Man, in the way that uh, Robert Preston portrayed it in the movie, was a little flamboyant. So it just, that's, I thought that's the way Preston was. Anyway, so I enjoyed a chance to see him uh, doing something new. Um, my father and I, well, my father was a big uh, Rockford Files fan, so therefore I was growing up. So I knew who James Garner was, and that was amazing. Of course, I knew Alex Karras, because I just mentioned that. And who doesn't know Julie? What child at that point didn't know who Julie Andrews was because of Mary Poppins? And to, co- to top it all off on the, sh- well, it's not a short list, but it's not a long list of, of wonderful actors. Um, John Rhys Davies, who was Sala in the Indiana Jones movies. So it, to me, I, I, I recognized all these faces because at the time I was like, I don't know these faces of these people in this, in this movie. At least that's how, kind of how I felt, unless it was a kid's movie or something. So, so to recognize people was, wow, this is great. Um, I don't think I knew who Leslie Ann Warren was at the time, but I, from this movie, I remembered her. And I remembered her again when I saw Clue. I was like, hey, Clue, that's, that's oh, Norma Cassidy from <laughs> Victor Victoria. So, so I was very familiar with this, with this cast visually as the, as the leads. And then just the, the campiness of it, the, the farcicalness of it played right to my, you know, the only other entertainment I really watched at the time was, uh, or consistently watched at the time was cartoons, which is just nothing but farce to begin with. So to see this live action musical comedy farce was amazing to the to the little eight-year-old well i want i'd rather nine-year-old ten-year-old me 
Huh? So I was enjoying it. It was awesome. And then at the end, uh, the, the again, because of the time period, uh, to and it's also a plot point, to, uh, to save the day, technically, Robert Preston appears in drag. And I don't want to give away, you know, why, because that's part of the story. But um, he, uh, it was, it, 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 I don't know if it's because of how he played it, because of how his character is, is gay and flamboyant to begin with, or, or what. But it wasn't the, let's laugh at the, uh, at that point, old man in a dress. Because he was, he was older. I mean, he passed away. This was, I think, his second to last movie. Because uh, the last movie I know he did was uh, The Last Starfighter. So Robert Preston died in 87. Uh, this was his second to last, you know, big screen movie. The last one, as I said, was Last Starfighter. And then he did a couple TV movies. I'm looking at his IMDb thing right now. And so uh, he, was, he was on his way out, you might say. Um, he had a good, you know... Just almost a decade, and he was only sixty-eight. So, so I mean, he was young comparatively. <laughs> anyway, so to know that this was, you know, I got a chance to see this was amazing. I would be one of the firsts to see it, and it must have been a big thing because I remember coming back to my mother and saying, "Yeah, we saw," and I named whatever it was, or just told the plot of the story, and it was wonderful. Um, and I think my father caught flack for it. But like I had mentioned, it was a studio um, invite or something because it was private. So that was my first real exposure with um, the thought of playing cross genders. And it goes more along the lines of, of trans men than it does trans women because Julie Andrews, a you know, born female, pretends to be a guy who is a drag performer on stage. So it's it's that double twisted plot thing and uh, or double twisted arc thing, you know. I mean, it's um, in fact one of the lines is um, a woman playing a man playing a woman. They'll never believe him. And then the line back is, "Of course they'll never believe him," or something like that. I paraphrase it. It's a great quote. Anyhow, so this movie stuck with me for, for years, just absolute years. And as I got older and started watching it a little more frequently, because I bought the, the uh, VHS copy. So as I mentioned, the love for this movie started a long time ago. And then as I started getting into my cross-dressing years, I went, wait a minute, I'm kind of reverse doing what, what Julie is doing. And then for a while, <laughs> I wondered if I could, okay, could I be a man pretending to be a woman to be pretending to be a man? And at the time, I just, it wouldn't work. It just would not work um, within my own self, not out in the world. I just mean, for me, it wouldn't work. And I, I began to get a little closer to the story and try to figure out my own identity, really. That, so that's when that started. The seed was planted when I was 10 years old, 9, 10 years old. And so no wonder in my early teens... I started uh, dabbling in cross-dressing. It just made sense to me at the time. So another thing I love about this movie is the music and the time period. Uh, the time period's in the 30s because it's actually taken from a German film, Victor Victoria, and Victor und Victoria, I think. That is the one. Yeah, that must be the title. Yes. Uh, 
Sorry about that. <laughs> little little German sneaking in there. Um, anyway, uh, so it was a remake. I mean, it was the the concept of the story wasn't original. In fact, uh, Victor Victor the Victor Victoria I'm speaking about from 1982 was um, not only based off the 19 I think it was 33 34 film. Um, there was another one in the 34, 35, 36 right there made in French. So there was a German version of the film, a French version of the film. And then, you know, 50 years later in 82, (laughs) there's what I'm referring to the Victor Victoria movie by Blake Edwards. So the story had been around for a long time. It's like Le Cage Faux for, um, and Birdcage. That story is probably, probably as old as time to be honest, but we'll, won't go into that. Um, but the music in the time period, I have always loved and always been drawn to the 30s. And when I say the 30s, I kind of mean the late 20s, like right as talkies started in that late era, 1927, 28, um, all the way through uh, early 40s, like right before the war ended. And, and music from that era has always caught my eye. And specifically the, the years 1933 to 1938 um, are where I kind of get pulled to in that vast... A vast length of time piece of time and it could have been this movie that started that i don't know it just it, that's just how i i have always been drawn to this that particular period now i know the music used is contemporary henry mancini and and who come on pink panther i mean amongst countless other pieces of music is just he's is awesome just awesome so to, to, for Mancini to uh, uh, capture the the, the the essence of the period in his music, both both the, the the jazzy numbers and the show numbers, but also the incidental music that was played underneath it. Uh, Leslie Burkus, I believe, is also who uh, composed the music. I mean, what a team, Mancini and Burkus. I mean, and Burkus wrote uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, for those that may not know. So, uh, to me, there's no reason to not like this movie. The only reason to not like this movie is because you don't understand or didn't come from the period in which it was made, 1982. Um, For that, I totally respect your opinion if you think it's a horrible movie um, or even a horrible Broadway show when Julie did it in the 90s, uh, uh, late 80s, early 90s, somewhere in there. Uh, It was after Preston had died. And uh, she took it to Broadway and then to London and I think Tokyo. Um, I got the soundtrack to that. Um, They changed some songs and things. Then they took out one of my favorites, which I will play later for us. Because there's actually a couple songs from from this piece that I I want to to share with my, my friends, with you. So that's why I'm talking about music. And then ultimately, uh, the transgender theme that that Blake Edwards used. And he used it in a couple other films as well. Uh, At least that's what I remember reading in the trivia over on IMDb, which you can look up yourself. Because why waste the time to read something you can look up yourself? Because I couldn't read it all. I'd have to choose and pick my favorite things. And then chances are you're going to go back to read it anyway. So why why waste time talking about that when, you know, you're going to do it anyway? And if you want to talk to me about it, message me on Facebook. (laughs) Duh. Anyhow, (laughs) it seemed that Blake Edwards used a lot of uh, cross-dressing gay, quote-unquote, themes, which we now can interpolate as transgender themes, on a few of his films. And... Uh, makes me wonder, did he have some own of his own identity issues? Maybe? Maybe? I don't know. I, Julie's probably the only one that knows, or maybe a close friend of, of, of uh, Blake Edwards, but we'll never know. Um, 
and I don't really care to know if that's the case. But he, I find it interesting that he did use the theme a lot. And yeah, you can say that he pokes fun at it because it's his wife, Julie Andrews, pretending to be a man who's pretending to be a woman, which was what she actually is. And if you have to argue with that, well, that's just the concept of entertainment. Uh, drag queens use many techniques to get a reaction, laughter or, or sadness or just whatever it is from their audience. Um, it's it's part of performing that uh and it's and if you ha- if you have to think of it to to really wrap your head around it think of it as performance art because it's the artist that's performing what you're immediately seeing they yes they may be lip syncing something uh they may be actually singing something they may be saying things but they're it's very uh burlesque in your face so you got to understand that type of performance. It's 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 pushing the envelope. It pushes that that walks that fine line of of humor, and that's the that's the sadness of humor is you borderline that. Do I insult somebody to take a joke, or do I choose a safer way and not get a big not get as big a laugh? And that's just the way performers have to think, and writers and all that. So. You know, if you can't wrap your head around the 1982 concept of that, I get it. But that's where this is coming from. It's a, to me, it's just one of those classic films. And the fact that it, I think, and have since I was a kid, since I first saw the film, really doesn't make fun of anything transgender or genderqueer, gender fluid, or gay, or whatever you want to tag it with. Um, I don't think it makes fun of it at all. I think it uses it to its advantage. Because, as I read in the premise, uh, this performer, this beautiful uh, soprano performer, I mean, Julie Andrews, for crying out loud, can't get a job, which, okay, fine, might be a little unbelievable, but that's the story, that's the heightened reality, that's the farcicalness of it. Uh, Can't get a job. And, and we've got to remember, it's the 30s, so it's the Depression era, so it makes sense that they can't get a job. So uh, she befriends this uh, uh, nightclub uh, performer, and uh, the nightclub performer, uh, which is Robert Preston's character, sees her eating in a cafe uh, as he's walking home from work, and he realizes, wait, she can't, she can't uh, afford this. So... He comes in and sits down at her table and, uh, you know, talking to her. And she says, order whatever you'd like. And he says, how can you afford this? I saw your audition today. You have nothing. I I know because I have nothing as well. And so uh, that's when the plot of there's a cockroach that she's took from her hotel room that she's going to plant into the the, the food and, uh, you know, not pay for anything. That's their that's their plot. Uh, anyhow, I, I don't want to give away any more of the movie because that's, that's happens in the first, tw- I think it's the first reel, to be honest, the first 20 minutes to establish all the characters. Anyhow, these two performers are down and out and cause Robert Preston's a, a cabaret performer and singer and he was just fired as I, as I read in the premise before. So these two people are trying to fit these two artists, these two performers in the thirties are trying to make ends meet and see what they can do to do money. So the concept of taking one of their people, one of the two and, uh, covering up, accentuating and, uh, blowing out of proportion their talent, which is a singing, a, a beautiful female singer, 
uh, and cover it up into the concept of a drag king or a drag queen, since, you know, she's supposed to be a guy portraying a woman, so that's drag queen, uh, is just ingenious for the time period. This person's in disguise of this, that, and the other thing, and look how well they sing. Oh, the world's going to eat it up at that time. So it just makes perfect sense. Just makes perfect sense to have a story like this. And now I'm going to share a few songs with you from the show, from the movie version. Uh, This first one is called Gay Paris, and it's uh, right in the beginning of the movie. It introduces Robert Preston's character, and... He it just he sells it so well. I mean, the visual from the movie goes better than with the audio. So if you have a chance, maybe YouTube it if it's out there. I don't know, <laughs> but um, it, if you ha- if you haven't seen it, try to see it because it's just so beautiful. When people speak of gay Paris, they think that when they say Paris is gay. They mean that gay Paris is gay. It is. Not in the way Paris was gay in yesterday Paris. It means today that gay Paris is gay. Not that gay. They say Paris has always been that way. Along the banks of the Seine Just take a walk now and then You'll meet some interesting men Gay Paris Along the Rue Madeleine Each evening round about ten You'll see it time and time again Gay Paris If you've a soiree to spare Go to the Folie Berger You'll see such gaiety there C'est la vie Around the Rue des Beaux-Arts Where all the cabaret shows are I mean, well, really, those are You'll agree What they mean when they say gay Paris The Faubourg Saint-Honoré, where all the millionaires play, is also, I'm so glad to say, Gay Paris. The Rue de Rivoli Arcade, where fancy goods are displayed, there's also bound to be rough trade, Gay Paris. And in arrondissement 8, the Champs-Élysées I would rate, perhaps the one thing that's straight as can be. And at the Café de la Paix, if you are heading that way, they drink a toast every day around three. They make each moment as gay as le 14 juillet. That's what they mean when they say gay Paris. Next song is called You and Me. Again, it's Robert Preston, Julie Andrews. Um... To set this up, they go into a nightclub. In fact, the nightclub, this is after they've already become stars. And they go back to the nightclub where they met, you know, this little tiny hole-in-the-wall place, uh, just to grab a quick drink. And the audience obviously recognizes him. And so they pull Victor up on stage. Well, actually, Toddy brings Victor up on stage because Toddy knows that the audience will never give up 
until something happens. They give them something, then they can sit down and say, no, no, we're done. So uh, pulls uh, Victor up on stage, and then they perform this song. And this one is probably the one that stuck with me my entire life. The one, the, this one, and then the closing number of the movie, which I'm not going to play. You'll have to watch the movie for that. Are the two that stuck out in my mind as pieces that, that, of music that stayed with me from the moment I heard them. So here's You and Me. You and me We're the kind of people Other people Would like To be Wandering free We present the kind of picture People are glad To see And we don't care that tomorrow comes with no guarantee. We've each other for company. And come what may, you and me will stay together. Me, Harmony. Here at Won't we, my dear, we'll always be you and walk this way. You and me, we're the kind of people, is a very difficult step. Whoa, such a fuss. Lastly, the song uh, is called Crazy World. It's the theme song. It's the motif. It's uh, the opening credits. You'll probably recognize the tune again. It's a beautiful piece, and I think it sells better in the movie than the Broadway show. And that's because it has to be an intimate moment where the character looks within himself, herself, or herself, himself at that moment in time, to, to, to make a choice of what to do, what's the next step in life. And for me, uh, I've always have loved the song, 
And now that I've come out and embraced the fact that I am transgendered, it means so much more, which really makes me wonder about Blake Edwards, Henry Mancini, and Leslie Burkus, who wrote, who wrote this and put this together. Just what were their own internal thoughts about, though they didn't know the word, transgender. Crazy world, full of crazy contradictions, like a child. First you drive me wild, and then you win my heart with your wicked art. One minute tender, gentle. And temperamental as a summer storm Just when I believe your heart's getting warmer You're cold and you're cool And I, like a fool, try to go So, that was that. Transgender 30-Day Challenge, or 30-Episode Challenge. Question number eight. How do you deal with being read slash misgendered in the beginning of transitioning by people? Well, um, this is again a strange question in for me in my in my world in my life because, as we just discussed with Victor Victoria, the seed was planted when I was ten years old, nine years old. So my subconscious has been working and thinking on this for well ever since I was a kid, and I and I and, and as I uh, grew older, I, I went to different steps and different plateaus of accepting my 
uh, transgender status, uh, sum it up. So, uh, so the word beginning of my transitioning by people, I, I, I'm going to say really started with the first time I went out in public dressed, which was 22, 23 years old. Uh, with the two friends, I've mentioned this story in the past, two uh, female friends of mine, we all went out. And it was a good time. I just had a lot of panic. So when we were out, the, you know, did, um, the whole thing of being misread, I think, was blown out of proportion. I mean, I got read, but wasn't horribly read, I guess. I don't know. And uh, as far as dealing with it at that moment in time, the very first time I can think of and be out in public and be read, I ran home, basically. Told those two lady friends of mine, let's go, gotta go, bye-bye. And as time progressed, and I was, you know, uh, going out more and more frequently, um, I got read less and less, uh, misgendered less and less and less, and it it just seemed to flow. You know, it just, it was natural to be uh, out and feminine, you know, at the time. So really... Uh, since I've come out and have lived full-time, I haven't really been misgendered that frequently. Like I've mentioned in the past episodes, usually it's voice stuff. It's my, it's my phone voice, it's the drive through it's whatever. And okay, fine, if that's the problem, God, there are so many other things to deal with that I'm not going to really worry about it or let it get to me. Because uh, during the drive through as soon as they see me, they're like, wait, whoa, huh? Wait, what? What? Because I, I look, well, you've seen pictures. Look at the Facebook page. There's pictures. There's pictures on my Twitter. You've, that's me. Ha-ha. Uh, for me, I feel I look girly enough, and that's that. So if somebody, you know, looks at me and says, hey, that's a guy in a dress, or that's a girly-looking dude, or that's a dude dressed up, or whatever the hell they want to call me, I, I, I don't really know what I would do, because that's not really accepted anymore in society. 30 years ago, 20 years ago, yeah, that's you scared for your life if somebody called you out on that. Look, there's a dude in a dress. Let's go beat him up. Yeah, so uh, again, because of that, I understand the, the appeal of going stealth and not le- revealing your trans status. But that's another conversation. So as I mentioned, I feel lucky that it hasn't really happened. Um, if it does happen and gets to a point of being annoying, then I'm just going to correct them. I mean, this is assuming that they're quote-unquote a stranger, like the waiter at a restaurant where you're only dealing with them for a short period of time and then you're gone. You know, if it's at that, I'm just going to politely correct them and, you know, move on. Most of the time, the people are going to be apologetic. Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to say that. And that's the reaction I get. <laughs> you know, that's the reaction I get when people misgender me. Oh, wait, no, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say that. I didn't. I'm so sorry. Well, they're beating themselves up. So why? what good would it do? for me to beat them up as well. It's not worth it. They're already kicking themselves. They're already really remembering what to do the next time. The thing that I don't understand about people being misgendered is the, uh, the newly out, as this question states, you know, in the beginning of transition. And so let's just say arbitrarily that the beginning of transition is the first year you're living full time. Let's just, let's just throw it out there so everybody understands where I'm coming from on this. Okay, that first year since you've come out to to everyone, I am transgendered and I'm going to be living as my true identity and I want you to call me this name and use these pronouns. From that moment, okay, a year, okay, in that first year, 
what uh, what bothers me are the people that don't understand that the people around them, their family, their friends, are also going through their own transition, and they get so upset at the at those people. Uh, you know, oh, if you misgender me, I'm never going to talk to you again. You know, to that, cut those people some slack because you just sprung this information on them. They're going through their own transition. They're going through their own thing in their mind about how to uh, interact with the transgender person now. So cut them some slack is, is, is my thing. Now, if some time has gone by and you're obviously living full time and it's obvious that this is choices that you're going to stick with and it's not a phase and that this is what it is, then start, you know, being a little more uh, aggressive you know, uh, uh, maybe not aggressive, but stern about your correcting of, hey, look, it's been however long it's been, 18 months, two years, whatever, and you're still calling me the incorrect name and pronoun. Can, can we work on this a little bit more, please? And you work with them on it, you know, remind them, start thinking about uh, uh, of, uh, of reminding them when you see them again for the first time. You know, oh, hey, nice to see you again. Remember, the name is this and the pronoun is this. Just as a little reminder, because if you point it out first, then you have a little bit of ground to say, OK, look, I gave you some information and you ignored it. You're blatantly ignoring it, which means you're hurting me which means you ultimately don't necessarily care about my feelings or my preferences. So let's come to a decision. Do we need to not see each other any longer, be friends anymore, whatever the case may be, until, until you can respect my choices? Because I have given you, and then be fair, three years, two years, whatever it is. As long as you've given them a chance, then, and they're still doing it, then by all means, make the, make the decision to, to step aside and say, look, until you can get your shit together and can call me the right things, Let's not talk. But that's after maybe three years of trying to correct them. Now, there's other times when people are just malicious. Well, those people need to be corrected right away. If that's going to be that's how it is, then you don't be malicious back to them, but stand your ground. Stand your ground and realize that you don't have to be around them. You can choose to not be around them. If it's a work situation, uh, I feel for you. I feel for your pain. That's a hard one because some people use misgendering as a form of uh, dominance and control over the situation. Oh, I know you want to go by Jane, but I'm still going to call you Tom or whatever name. You know, you know what I mean. Um, or conversely, I know you want to go by Tom, but I'm still going to call you Jane. And I mean, if they're going to be that big of a dick, go to HR. And if HR, if HR is there to do their job, then they, they'll address it. If not, maybe take it to the next step. Maybe take it to the next step as, um, uh, well, uh, legally. I'll let you follow that on your own. But that's a work situation. Um, I mean, in my, in my being out almost a year, I'm at nine months right now, April will be a year. There are times when people are talking to me that I, I mean, and they, they, they use miss or ma'am, and my brain goes, oh, wait, oh, that's for you. Because <laughs> I spent 40 years of hearing the masculine pronouns and things. Of course my brain's going to be like, okay, let's, whoop, nope, that's us. That's that ma'am, that was for you. Yeah, so even I get caught in it, in myself. I mean, it, I, have, I, in the very, very, very beginning, had to, I had to kick myself for misgendering myself or mispronouncing myself 
when I referred to myself. You know, this girl was this guy for quite a while. <laughs> um, so everybody goes through a transition. It's the people that go all get their panties up in a bind and get all uppity about, oh, if you misgender me, I'm never going to talk to you again. All right. You know, you got some other issues to figure out because you don't realize that the person you're talking to and telling them that you're not going to talk to them again have already accepted the fact that you are transgender, are already trying to be supportive, are already there with you on your side, and they made a mistake. They're human. Give them a chance. They're human. Cut them some slack. That's all. That's really what I have to say about misgendering, is give it a fair time. Realize that as long as it is for you to transition, everybody else is going through their own. So help them through theirs, because I guarantee it, it'll help you in yours. So let me know your thoughts on this question. Um, you know, how do you deal with being misread or misgendered in the beginning of your transition? Listener feedback. Yeah. Okay. So, listener feedback. This one, I don't have a lot. I don't really have a lot. In fact, the only thing that I have is right before I started recording, I noticed we have a new like on the Facebook page. Yay! 96 as of this recording. I am so happy. And this is the middle of January for those keeping score. And so, so I'm so just so happy. Now we're only four away from 100. And uh, if, if you don't remember from previous episodes, when I started the podcast in October, my little self-inflicted goal was to get 100 by the uh, December 31st or January 1st, New Year's, and we got to 95. And so while we're still in January, we're at 96. Hey, thank you. Thank you for joining the team of likes on the Facebook page and listening to the show. I don't have a name because the little app on my phone won't tell me, but I see the counter go up. The next little bit of listener feedback is actually something I've been meaning to say for a while, and I totally spaced out on it the last uh, couple episodes, was uh, the audience survey. There'll be a link uh, in the show notes, which are going to be over on the Blogspot page for this particular episode. So go find it there. I will also post it on Facebook a few times. Uh, just click the link, answer the questions, fill in whatever it is, because... Yes, it is marketing. I, I, it's demographic marketing. I, I'll be upfront and honest. That's what it is. Because what I use to keep track of the counts and downloads and things with, my, with the show offers a survey, which is what you're hopefully going to be taking. Because once I complete a certain number of those, plus I have a large enough 90-day accumulative download quantity... I, the, the, the business will come to me with certain advertising. And that's usually, you know, put something, there's something in the front of the show, something at the end of the show, something like that. Okay, so out of my control, that's all. But I will get some kickback from it. So that's, that's the ultimate reason why to do the audience survey. Plus, I see them. I see the results. So, I mean, it's all anonymous. It doesn't say who's what. I mean, it's just numbers. It's all, that's all I see. So 
Uh, there is a feedback place there that you can put your own words in. So I do see those, and I'll read those uh, on the air, unless it says, please don't read on air. You know, That's the deal here. It changes in latitudes. So that's really what I'm wanting to share with you guys. Please take a moment to do the uh, audience survey. Uh, I think it, I, when I took it, I think I spent about 10-ish minutes on it. Could, could be a little more because I was distracted slightly with uh, my son at the time. So I, I want to say about 10, maybe a little longer, 15. So allow yourself a little bit of time. Don't do it while you're on the go. But 15 minutes is what? You know, I, I don't know. There's a lot can be done in 15 minutes. Uh, but anyway, ultimately down the road, when we get a total of 100 audience uh, feedback things done, that's, that's one goal. Then the next is 90-day downloads, which I mentioned before. Um, I have to have a total of 20,000 downloads every 90 days. And I know the only way that's going to happen is if I, once I beef up the content. So once we're at episode, prob- what, 322, that's when we'll hit that goal. So anyhow, <laughs> that's really the only feedback, aside from what I like to say to you guys every week. Thanks for joining me. You guys are awesome. Uh, thanks for coming back for returning guests and new guests. It's, I, it's a synergistic thing with podcasting. If I didn't have you guys out there listening, I really wouldn't be here doing it. Yeah, some more Victor Victoria music. Victor Victoria music. I, I, I just—it's one of my favorites. That's all. This is just the instrumental to uh, uh, you and me. If you—if you're curious, all the songs I played are from the movie soundtrack. I believe is available on iTunes. Not sure about Amazon. Haven't searched it out. Uh, I actually have the CD of it that I, you know, since digitized and ripped it off the disc. So. Uh, I, but I have pretty sure I have seen it on the iTunes catalog. Next episode. Next episode. Uh, this, I, this is what I thought of at the very beginning before I even turned on the microphone. I said, I'm going to do a show about doing guy stuff. Guy being in quotes, okay? Because um, I hope by now, you, I hope by now you folks realize that I do not believe in guy work and woman's work. Anybody can do it. Doing guy stuff kind of in guy mode is what I'm talking about. So that's next episode, next week. And now, as Jimmy Buffett says, if I couldn't laugh, I just would go insane. If we couldn't laugh, we just would go insane. If we weren't all crazy, we would go insane. Stay crazy, everyone.
You've been listening to Changes in Latitudes, a transgender experience. I'd love to hear from you. So let me know what you think or what you'd like to hear about by emailing me at changesinlatitudespodcast at gmail.com or by leaving a comment on the Facebook page at facebook.com slash changesinlatitudespodcast or at the website changesinlatitudespodcast.blogspot.com. Don't forget to subscribe in Stitcher, iTunes, or your favorite podcatcher, and please leave us reviews and star ratings. Now, wait for it. Here it comes. Disclaimer time. Disclaimer time. Disclaimer I am not a doctor nor a lawyer, and I certainly do not pretend to be one. I am a trans woman who began her transition later in life. I am here to discuss my life, so I take no responsibility for your decisions based on my personal thoughts and experiences. If you are thinking about transition or are questioning your gender identity, first, please know that you are not alone in your thoughts and questions. Second, please seek the advice of a qualified gender therapist or at the very least a local support group. If you're having difficulty finding a qualified professional in your area, I suggest reaching out to the closest LGBT center near you. And lastly, please remember, always question the source when researching information on the internet. All contents are distributed under a Creative Commons no-derivative license and may be shared freely in their entirety. Any alteration or less-than-complete reproduction requires permission from the host. Copyright 2015 by me, Sabrina Miller. Thanks for listening.